Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Corrine Pettit, and I'm here today to talk about chronic pain and therapies used to manage such pain, which now in many states include the use of cannabis-based products as a response to managing severe pain. I'm here today with dermatologist Dr. Jason Hawk. Assistant Professor of Dermatology at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Hawks has served as a principal investigator and co-investigator for a number of pharmaceutical-sponsored and investigator-initiated clinical trial protocols. He is a member of the National Psoriasis Foundation's Medical Board and is currently leading a comprehensive literature review regarding the medical use of cannabis, also known as marijuana, for people with psoriatic disease, and the National Psoriasis Foundation Medical Board position paper on this topic. Welcome to Soundbites, Dr. Hawks. It's a pleasure to have you on here today. So to begin our discussion, let's first talk about chronic pain. The CDC estimates that one in five people suffer from chronic pain, and that interferes with daily activities. Over the last few years, there's been a lot of attention on the issue of managing chronic pain. Why is that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I recently was reading a little bit about the statistics on pain and from the CDC and and saw that you know opioids have really been prescribed and increased more than four times in about the last decade. And we're really seeing more and more patients who have inadequately managed chronic pain and and our infrastructure is really not that easy to navigate. A lot of these patients I think are left without adequate access to medicines or treatment modalities that can help mitigate the pain in their life. And in many cases, this pain really takes over their lives. It interferes their ability to sleep or maintain a job, impacts how they provide care to their children or loved ones, and definitely has a dramatic impact on the relationship. So it's not surprising that people are really seeking more non-traditional forms of pain control through acupuncture or even illicit or medicinal cannabis use. And the reasons for the increase it's probably a little more complicated and almost certainly multifaceted. There are some possible explanations for why we're seeing more chronic pain in, in the U.S. And that probably has to do with some of the success or, or better medical treatments or cancer treatments that we have available. And, but also comorbidities of living longer, like obesity or cancer rates and, and also major elective surgery. So I think pain is a big component of healthcare now. And regardless of the exact causes, it's clear that our patients are going to have complaints of pain and we need to be looking at better treatment modalities for chronic pain. And when somebody's in that cycle of pain, they're really looking for quick relief. You mentioned opioids as a treatment option for chronic pain. Are there any other options? Maybe we can talk a little bit more about cannabis. Could that be of benefit? Yeah, you know, outside of some of the common uh, non-traditional approaches to pain control, acupuncture, yoga, those to meditation. I think people are looking for these other options because traditional medicines haven't worked and cannabis is certainly one of those. But beyond that, there are companies that are trying to develop novel 
non-opioid-based treatments that are either being developed or tested in clinical trials, but they're still not available currently for use. And despite the need for these novel treatments, there's really some major holes in physicians' armamentarium in terms of what can be used for these patients. And while it's still pretty new, you know, exploring any potential benefits that cannabis-related compounds might have is really timely and I think important for helping mitigate this chronic pain pandemic that we're observing in the United States. Well, that's a great segue into our discussion today about medical use of cannabis or marijuana. If the use of cannabis is legal within a state for medical conditions, what conditions is it generally used for? And could it be helpful for pain associated with psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis? I think it's really important to consider the availability of cannabis-based products in the U.S. It's interesting to me that there's, or not interesting, maybe more surprising that there are only 11 states in the U.S. currently in which marijuana use is fully illegal. So that means, you know, more than 75% of the U.S. states basically allow medicinal or illicit cannabis use. So we're really dealing with the majority of individuals in the U.S. who have access to these products. And we're only going to see an increase in that number. So physicians really have to be prepared to manage an increasing proportion of patients who are going to use these products. Currently, the FDA only has one cannabis-derived drug product that's been approved and then three synthetic drug products that are available for use, but, but they're restricted for use in the treatment of seizures and nausea associated with chemotherapy or anorexia associated with weight loss in AIDS patients. So whether these products are, are going to be used in patients with psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis, the future is, is one thing, but certainly patients may be using these products in a non-prescribed way, and we're really going to have to look at whether they're going to be useful in mitigating pain or, or itching. But the area of research is really in its infancy, so we're really going to have to kind of see where the research leads and if it provides any clinical use in this particular area of medicine. And doesn't federal law prohibit use of cannabis as well? Yeah, I think it gets really complicated in terms of person that legally uses it in one area but has to travel or goes you know, to visit family and I think there's a whole other aspect in the U.S. about whether it's decriminalized or not. And I still think that there's a lot of gray areas that, that makes it challenging for both patients and physicians to navigate when patients are trying to find a way to get their life back and sort of win this battle against chronic pain. So regional and state and federal regulations make that a very complex, difficult system to work through. So just how does cannabis act to help reduce pain, and what is the effect on the endocannabinoid system? It's a great question. It really requires sort of a cannabis 101 tutorial because there's a set of very specific terminology that, that you need to know, and it's really like learning a new language. So when we talk about cannabinoids or compounds that are sort of derived from the cannabis plant. But we also have what we call endogenous cannabinoids or endocannabinoids in the body, which are basically compounds that are like those derived from the plants, but are made by our own body. And those were really discovered in the 1990s. And it's commonly referred to 
from the literature of publications as the endocannabinoid system, that endogenous system. And not surprisingly, it overlaps with other systems that modulate pain or a variety of other immune functions in the body. So for me, it's not all that surprising to find that cannabis use might be helpful in modulating pain because it looks so similar to other pathways in the body that we know do modulate pain. And then within the body, so the cannabinoids are the chemicals that interact with receptors in our body that then have an effect. And there are really two types of cannabinoid receptors in the body, commonly referred to as CB1 and CB2. And I think these are important general concepts or certainly going to find others in the future. But CB1 in general is really highly expressed in the central nervous system or the brain, but it is found in peripheral tissues as well, such as the skin, whereas CB2 is the opposite. It's very restricted or limited to immune cells or the blood system, but it's also found in other tissues like the brain uh, and skin. So there's really overlap between the two receptors, but both of these receptors, once they interact with a particular cannabinoid, whether from the plant or synthetic or made in our own body, they can modulate pain, though it's primarily through the CB1 receptor. And how a specific product or a cannabis-based product can modify pain is really limited or determined by its effect on specific receptors in a particular part of the body, such as the central nervous system or this peripheral aspect of our body, like the joints, muscles, and skin. And so this is a really complex, intricate system, and we're just now starting to tease out all the intricacies of that system because there are a lot of confounders, such as what specific product's being used, how potent is it, how is it delivered to the body, what symptom you're treating, such as pain or itching, for example. And as we start to tease that out, we're going to have to learn exactly how that system impacts certain diseases or certain parts of the body. And unfortunately, most of the research that's been conducted has been done in mouse models or cell cultures rather than in humans. So we're just barely starting to see that happen now in medicine. And even medicine isn't at the same stage of understanding. So for example, in oncology and neurology, they already have FDA approved medications, whereas dermatology, for example, is really still limited to anecdotal case reports or small cohort studies. So medicine's in different places, along with the development of these specific products. So I know you alluded to this already, uh, that not all cannabis is created equally. They act differently with potency and mechanism of action being a factor. Can you explain the difference between cannabinoids, THC, CBD, and hemp? So again, there's some specific terminology here that I think is important for both patients and providers to understand. So in general, I think cannabis typically refers to a genus of flowering plants that really is composed of three species. And there's a whole number of chemicals that can be derived from those plants. Those are the cannabinoid compounds that we talked about. So two really common cannabinoids that are frequently discussed are THC and CBD. THC has the typical psychoactive euphoric properties that we read about, and CBD really lacks those psychoactive properties. So I think they kind of have these opposing effects, very similar to the like the receptors of CB1 and CB2. They kind of have these opposing effects as well. 
So with more than 100 cannabinoids that can be isolated from the plant, really the ratio or the percentage of a specific cannabinoid such as THC, it's going to vary in these different plant species. It's also impacted by other factors sort of surrounding the cultivation of these plants, but can be impacted by the genetics, the gender of the plant, specific growing conditions, climate, et cetera. And so I think that gets back to your point of it's not all created equally. And in fact, even the same plant in a different environment can have different properties. And that's in contrast to the term hemp, which is often used probably inappropriately, and but in, interchangeably with marijuana. I think of hemp as really being best to describe the cannabis plant that contains 0.3% THC or less. And it often refers to really the useful non-psychoactive properties of the plant, such as the products that from the plant that are used to make clothing or paper. And so I think in general, sort of marijuana versus hemp, I think hemp's really that useful non-psychoactive property of the plant or plants with those non-psychoactive properties are, are limited, whereas marijuana is really referring to the cannabis that has higher contents of THC, more than 0.3%, and is really intended for its use as a psychoactive agent. So again, how these particular products or species or particular plant reacts in an individual or what effects it has on an individual, again, is determined by a number of factors, delivery method, et cetera. You mentioned psychotropic effects. Is cannabis considered an addictive substance like opioids? Does it impact both physical and cognitive function? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting question, and I think it's complicated. I think if you step back from looking at a particular product and say, well, what are the principles of addiction? Like opioids, cannabis can take the form of, of addiction in terms of its impact on individuals. So we do observe the development of drug dependence or drug tolerance with cannabis use, just like other addictive chemicals. In response to sort of chronic use, our body's endogenous system starts to adapt and decrease the body's natural production of endocannabinoids. So that suggests that there, you know, is a, an alteration with long-term use, which sort of fits in general to the sort of addictive aspects of other chemicals. And then I think, you know, importantly, chronic use of cannabis can certainly interfere with a person's daily activities, like their work, ability to maintain relationships, their mood, sleep, et cetera and can lead to legal troubles. And one of the features of addiction that always stuck out to me through my medical training was that people continue to do a behavior or use a chemical or a substance despite serious consequences or adverse events. And that to me is really reminiscent of disorders or addictions in general. And, and certainly we've seen that in particular groups that use cannabis. So I, I think it can be a, addictive. Uh, I do think it's a lot less common than opioid addiction. But I think in terms of its long-term impact on a person's physical or cognitive function, those effects are also highly variable and, and depend on a number of factors. And really importantly, some people react to cannabis very differently than others. A lot of people have the euphoric 
relaxed feeling with acute use, whereas others might feel very anxious, paranoid, or even fearful. And long-term consequences of chronic use in, in those particular individuals really isn't clear. So we don't have clear-cut data on its impact on IQ or adolescent brain development. We're really going to need long-term research and clinical trials and observations to really understand those impacts. But I do think like any other chemical or ingestible product that they can lead to adverse consequences that patients need to be aware of. And what evidence is available to support the use of cannabis for treatment of chronic pain that could be specific for psoriatic disease? There's not a lot. Basically, it's a controversial topic right now. And part of that is because the evidence for the treatment of chronic pain, specifically for psoriasis, is just simply lacking. We haven't had clinical trials that have been conducted in this patient group. There have been some general studies about looking at the treatment of chronic pain, but I think most researchers and clinicians understand that pain in one condition may not respond the same way as pain from another condition. So the bottom line is that we really don't have any specific evidence for the treatment of pain for these psoriatic patients, but we're sort of drawing lessons from these other areas of medicine like oncology and pain management to begin to understand the consequences that basically these products might have in terms of alleviating or exacerbating pain. So I think that when we're looking at whether or not a specific cannabis-based product is effective, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach in medicine. We're really going to have to look at individual diseases and types of diseases. You know, bone pain might respond very differently than itch in the skin or muscle pain or muscle aches. And to be honest, we're in dermatology, we're really operating largely on information that's primarily based on these positive patient reports or these small case studies. And so I think, unfortunately, we're unable to make definitive recommendations in terms of whether these cannabis-based products will definitely be helpful for pain related to psoriatic disease or not. And are there any health risks or drawbacks associated with the use of cannabis? Yeah, I think this is really important to address because, as I mentioned, we're really learning from previous and ongoing human trials being conducted in other areas of medicine, as I mentioned, like oncology and pain management. So the most obvious drawback for patients who might want to use these cannabis-based products is that they might result in sort of the typical or known psychogenic effects that's associated with cannabis that may be undesirable or bothersome to particular patients. So may limit their use in individuals who are really sensitive to these psychotropic effects. And what's really interesting with that is even some of these products that are being developed that are restricted to the peripheral bodies, sort of as a way to get around the unwanted central nervous system effects, they still have adverse effects. So there was a recent study where they looked at a product that acted on both the CB1 and CB2 receptor in the body, but only in the peripheral aspect, not really having the impact on the brain. And, and they were studying it for pain, but that study failed primarily because there were unintended adverse events, and particularly there were cardiovascular effects. So there was a hypotension, a low blood pressure. There were a number of adverse metabolic side effects like weight gain. There was increased insulin resistance. So 
obesity, obviously we know it has an impact on our health in a lot of ways. And there was also liver toxicity was denoted. So I think that looking at getting around just the psychotropic thing in terms of these products that act both in the brain and the body and trying to get around that still has potential risks in particular patients. And for me, this is really important for physicians and patients to be aware of since psoriasis in and of itself increases your risk for other diseases like heart disease, liver fibrosis, obesity, diabetes, kidney disease. So we run into this problem that any potential benefit of using cannabis-based product for joint pain, for example, for psoriatic arthritis might really be offset by worsening cardiac health, weight gain, obesity, or damage to the liver. And so these patients have to be aware of other potential unintended consequences of these products. And these adverse effects might also be potentiated by other medications that patients are taking. For example, methotrexate, a common oral systemic immunosuppressant, is known to have effects on the liver. And so a patient on methotrexate who's also using cannabis products may be at an increased risk for that. And we really have to be thoughtful about the safe use of cannabis in this particular patient population. And they're seeing that also in oncology as well, where specific patients with a certain type of cancer are showing benefit that's slowing down the growth of their cancer, whereas the same product in a different cancer has been shown to actually allow for disease progression or worsening. So again, we we need to be looking at this field not as a one-size-fits-all, but what risks do my particular patients have who have psoriasis that want to use these products? What what are the things I should counsel them on or, or help them be more aware of so that if they're going to use these products, they're going to use them safely? And can cannabis interact with other medications someone may be using? Yes, it's definitely possible that we can see drug interactions that occur with our oral medications and cannabis-based products. You know, we don't fully understand the, the full spectrum of these interactions yet, but there are some common pharmacologic principles that suggest that those potential interactions exist. One of the aspects that we kind of talk about are the fact that the liver is a very common organ in, in breaking down both medications and also things that we ingest. And and that happens to be true of of THC and CBD, which are broken down by enzymes that are in the liver. So one of the impacts of this concept is that a particular medication might inhibit those liver enzymes, which can significantly alter the blood levels of THC or CBD in the bloodstream after use. So that can mean for a patient that using a cannabis-based product by itself has a certain impact or results in a certain response. And then using it while you're on your regular oral medication can really increase the blood levels of those cannabinoids and have a very different effect or an unwanted effect. And that includes its potential side effects. So that's really important. And I think the other way is also true, which is that cannabis-based products can also affect the levels of our regular oral medications. Um, That's particularly true with some blood pressure medications. So using them together with cannabis can result in very low blood pressure or hypotension. Also, there's medications that can have very serious toxicity if they're not metabolized appropriately. So some of those medications can include blood thinners or immunosuppressant medications that 
at very high levels can can lead to life-threatening adverse effects. So what this really sort of comes back to is the fact that both physician and patients really need to be having an open conversation about all of the medications they're taking. And that includes prescribed and non-prescribed because we want to keep patients safe first and foremost, but we also don't want your non-prescribed cannabis use to impact the efficacy of your other medications that have been prescribed for really important health conditions. There are a number of different forms of cannabis-based products. Can you provide some examples of those products? This is where the cannabis field can feel a little overwhelming, I think, to both physicians and patients, especially those that are maybe less familiar, that there's a whole host of products. And those products can be delivered in a number of ways. So there's smoking, there's vaping, which is basically smokeless inhalation, there's capsules or edibles, so cannabis in different products. You know, there's the what they call tinctures, which are the sublingually administered medications that absorb into the bloodstream. There's topicals, there's transdermal patches, which are, I think, of particular interest to dermatologists, but we see dabbing, which is heating cannabis concentrate. There's full spectrum oils. Their suppository. So the forms that these cannabis-based products come in are highly variable. And there are many, to be frank, and particular physician or patient who hasn't really used cannabis in, in the past can really be overwhelmed or caught off guard by all the choices. And I think this idea of potency that the amount or the cannabis-based product that's delivered to the body really varies widely based on the method of delivery. So as much as 35% of a cannabis-based product can be absorbed when ingested via an edible, for example, compared to somewhere in the 10 to 5% that gets delivered topically. So just the method of delivery can impact how much the body actually encounters. And what's really interesting is that some of these methods like topical delivery, they have a very low absorption in terms of the percentage that's actually delivered, but the, the topical cannabinoid products last longer than most other methods that they can last as long as six to 10 hours or so with this slow release into the skin. So they might sort of have a longer duration of efficacy compared to, to say oral ingestion. I think what we're gonna have to look at is that specific patients or types of ailments or symptoms may be best treated with a particular form of delivery based on the specific characteristics of that method. You might want slow or low absorption with a really long duration like we see with the skin versus rapid or high absorption with a short duration such as some of the inhalation or ingestion type methods. So again, this is where the education for the field in general has to come so that both patient and physician kind of understand the properties of or the impact of how the product's actually used. And education is certainly the purpose for this podcast today. As medical board member, you are leading the effort to review the current literature about the use of cannabis for psoriatic disease. Why is it important for the MPF Medical Board to develop a statement on this topic? Whether we're prescribing them or not, a significant number of patients are going to use or are already using these cannabis-based products in conjunction with their current topical or systemic treatments for psoriasis. Part of this is because there's a proportion of patients 
who just simply are inadequately treated or their disease is recalcitrant to current FDA approved therapy. So these patients are sort of left with no other options in their mind to, to try to get control of their lives and try to win the battle against their chronic pain. But there are also patients who just simply don't want to undergo treatment with traditional modern medicines, but they want to seek, you know, other safe, effective, or alternative therapies like cannabis to help control their psoriatic disease or symptoms. So I feel like the NPF Medical Board made a commitment to the psoriasis community to stay up to date on these current topics related to psoriatic disease and when appropriate to provide guidance or, or caution, maybe in this case, on on those topics that have the potential to benefit or harm our patients that we're committed to helping. I think it's it's a topic that whether we're making medical advances or not, it's of interest to the general public and, and certainly the private industries out there are producing these cannabis-based products en masse and they're out there. So we need to we need to be ahead of of the response to their potential safe use until there's more evidence. Yeah, use of cannabis is such a polarizing and controversial topic with many facets and impacts of use. So what final comments would you like to share with our listeners about the use of cannabis? You know, I think as a final comment here, we really don't know a lot about psoriasis and all the intricacies in managing the chronic disease. There are still aspects that we're not perfectly treating, and that includes the pain, the itching, or other joint symptoms that you know are often associated with psoriatic disease, and these can really be debilitating to patients. The progress that we've made in management of psoriasis in the skin has really been tremendous, but it's far exceeded the improvements that we've made in psoriatic arthritis, and it really represents a tremendous unmet need. We're really hopeful that future medicines that are being studied or tested might help us better manage these symptoms in patients who have pain or or joint disease. And I think cannabis may provide some relief for a subset of these patients that are really struggling to get relief. But the efficacy and safety of these products still hasn't been fully elucidated or worked out. So there's a lot, lot to be learned. And I think it's important patients are aware of the fact that anecdotal benefits that are observed in a neighbor or particular individual aren't necessarily going to translate to benefit in another, particularly if their disease is not exactly the same. And so until then, physicians and patients have to proceed with caution. But more importantly, we need to continue to be educated and informed on this interesting topic that's evolving. It's evolving rapidly. And in doing so, we're going to be prepared for the future that might include more FDA-approved products that are cannabis-based that dermatologists may be faced with with choosing. And, and they really need to understand the potential benefits and or risks of those products. Well, thank you, Dr. Hawks, for increasing our knowledge about pros and cons associated with the use of cannabis. Your insights about the use in regards to chronic pain are, are really helpful, and it's good to know that MPF will have a statement on the use soon. Thanks for having me. It was, it was a nice opportunity to talk about this exciting topic. For more information about this topic, be sure to catch the upcoming episode with information from the MPF Medical Board Literature Review about the medical use of cannabis. If you are experiencing chronic pain, 
please contact the National Psoriasis Foundation's Patient Navigation Center during September to receive the Chronic Pain Kit, which includes a pain management guide and tracker, along with tips for discussing chronic pain with your healthcare provider. To request your free kit today, call 1-800-723-9166 or by email at education at psoriasis.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.